From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Joining me as always is David Bank, founder and editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hey, Brian. And joining us remotely from the road is a very mobile Imogen Rose Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. Imogen, as I understand it, you're you're actually driving to the state capital of the university system that you now are working with. Is that right? I, I am on my way to, to Sacramento. I decided that, you know, we'd been giving our producer Isaac an easy time of it recently, so we'd try and throw in some, some more ambient noise and do a podcast from the road. That sounds great. And also uh, to our to our listeners who might be concerned about uh, auto safety, uh, Imogen, you are in fact the passenger right now, and your colleague is driving. Is that correct? That, that is correct. That's great. Well, we'll be safe all the same. Uh, and speaking of which, in California right now, the hillsides are falling down with some really tragic mudslides. In South Africa, in Cape Town, is running dry, is running out of water. The forests are disappearing again in Brazil and Indonesia. And of course, Puerto Rico, Houston, the Philippines, and elsewhere are still struggling to recover from the devastating hurricanes from 2017. Now, what does this have to do with impact investing? David, you just came back from the annual conservation finance conference at Credit Suisse in New York. Uh, can you give us a definition of what conservation finance is? And how does this differ from things like sustainable investing or even things like clean tech? Well, it, it was it was striking. We were in the basement of the Credit Suisse headquarters, or I guess their New York headquarters, um, in their conference area there. And uh, one of the speakers at the, at the at the conference had the audience stand up and chant, "Nature reduces risk. Nature reduces risk." So, so in this in this bank, people were were chanting, "Nature reduces risk." Um, th- this is a conference that's been going on for five years, and it's bringing together the bankers the NGOs, the big conservation organizations, and then a whole set of, of folks who are just trying to put together these kind of, um, you know, you know, so, so, sometimes wonky, but the, but the goal actually is to get to very large-scale financing schemes for very large-scale conservation. So just to get to your question, conservation finance is, is literally the ecosystems, literally the places, the forests, the rivers, the ocean environments that are the source of oxygen and of clean water and of all these things that people sometimes call ecosystem services. And the notion is that um, there's, you know, some very key, you know, people know the Amazon or the, or the Congo, but there's some very key ecosystems around the world that are responsible for a lot of the way this sort of planet regulates itself and that uh, finding ways to preserve those, not just, you know, sort of for the short term, but preserve them in a very sustainable way obviously takes in, into account the people living around them and in them, um, but also takes into account these these services that these uh, natural uh, areas uh, provide for the whole planet and for all of us. So so how do people make money? How do investors make money uh, off of these these natural lands and these ecosystems? Well, it's, I mean, that's exactly the question. But just the fact that you're am- asking that question, it shows that there has developed a field of conservation finance. So the first notion is, just the fact that people think and are thinking about how to make money from preserving as opposed to exploiting nature, that's the fundamental shift. And uh, as, 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 as we know, you know, we're a long way from solving that riddle, but I think there's starting to be early shoots and models and structures and mechanisms and, and, and even examples of money moving 
um, that show that it can be done. So I don't think the you know tipping point has reached has been reached on this. I think there's still a lot of um, extraction versus you know regeneration going on, but at least there are starting to be a sort of set of examples and a set of case studies and a set of obviously players who are interested, in, including you know big folks like Credit Risk, and there were folks from J.P. Morgan and and all the big banks and and whatnot were there um, uh, trying to figure this all out. Yeah, and, and I can understand why uh, big NGOs, big uh, environmental NGOs like Conservation International or the Nature Conservancy or the World Wildlife Fund would uh, turn to the tools of finance to kind of expand on their philanthropically minded work of uh, preserving and sustaining and conserving uh, our, our natural environment. Uh, but but where is the, the actual investment opportunity? And Imogen, in your work with institutional investors and being in the, the, the world of very large uh, check writers uh, in the institutional investment world, uh, where do they see the opportunities for these kind of uh, investment opportunities? <laughs> you know, that is, that's a challenging question. Yeah, I think that there is a lot of hope in, you know, the sort of conservation finance community that institutional investors do see investment opportunities in conservation. Um, and there's being a lot of work being done by some really good groups to focus on how do we come up with investable opportunities. However, when we're talking about sort of the largest institutional asset owners, your sort of your pension funds, your foundations, your endowments, um, sovereign wealth funds, it's not clear to me that they are yet seeing real opportunities in those spaces. Um, I think we have, you know, the, the possible exception might be land banking. People are interested in that. Can you, can you explain that? Uh, explain that for our listeners. I, of course, know what you mean, but maybe for our listeners, could you explain <laughs> what land banking means? It's basically when you go back in and you mitigate the damage that has been done to areas as a result of um, pollution or large-scale infrastructure build and stuff like that. Um, so there is there there is some interest by you know, mainstream investors in those types of strategies. But for the most part, the the kinds of investments and the kinds of financing that we're talking about are much more niche and they are mostly the kind of things that foundations and like foundations might be investing in through, you know, either program related investing money or through some kind of mission based part of that portfolio. Or you know, stuff that um, that the World Bank and other organizations like that might be in there. Let's take it back to your question, Brian, about how do people make money on this? Because the, the, for it to get to be interesting to, the, to those institutional investors, there first has to be a a project that is on the ground doing something, delivering conservation benefits, and then also delivering effectively a cash flow that can be financed somehow. And then once it can get financed somehow, it can get rolled into all kinds of mechanisms that eventually become products for institutional investors. But the first thing is there has to be a project, a set of benefits, and a set of and a, and a cash flow. And 
um, those things are, like I said, are starting to happen. You can pencil these things out. You can bring together the sale of sustainably grown commodities like cacao, like lumber and timber, like coffee. Uh, you can layer in, um, as Imogen said, the mitigation or the compliance fees that various operators have to pay or ta or 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 are, are, are liable for as a condition of getting the permit to work in that area or to mine that thing. Um, so for example, um, a lot of the large food producers, many, many companies have signed on to zero deforestation pledges for their palm oil operations. It's a huge problem in particularly in Indonesia, but elsewhere as well. If they don't comply with that, they have to do this kind of mitigation uh, work um, to get back in compliance, to get the certification that allows the big buyers of food and whatnot, who have also signed these pledges, will not buy from them unless they're certified. So there's starting to be a compliance mechanism in, in, in multiple markets. Um, you can get paid, for example, for, um, uh, you know, you know the, the classic example people will understand is carbon credits, and there's voluntary markets, there's mandatory markets, and but there's a price on carbon in many areas, and if you can show that you are keeping more trees in the ground or otherwise mitigating carbon, you can sometimes get paid for your carbon. In any event, there's this, you know, multiple revenue streams that are able to be derived from these projects, and if you can put enough of them together and show that there's enough of a return, and you can say that that can be guaranteed, say, over the 20-year life of the financing, you know, you at least have the beginnings of a, of a project that can get that can get finance and then you could you know aggregate a bunch of them together into a portfolio of projects and you could put that into a derivative of some sort and you could securitize it and you can do all the to, all the tricks of finance to make it big into real money so in many ways this is the flip side of of the the work that we've seen from investors and consumers and governments putting pressures on corporate behavior uh, to clean up their supply chains or to adhere to other voluntary commitments or regulations uh, to clean up their supply chains and mitigate their negative externalities from, from these companies. And so conservation finance as a field has emerged as essentially people that are looking for investable products, investable opportunities that help them solve a problem, which is their need to live up to these these other voluntary or mandated commitments. Is that, is that that's fair? That's clearly that's that's clearly one of the big drivers. That's turning out to be a big driver. And, and corporate, you know, a lot of this will not ever show up in you know the funds and and whatnot. This will show up in sort of corporate balance sheets as 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 investments that they have to make, or as you said, as liabilities that they have as well for for either transgressions or improvements they have to make. So, Imogen, how far are we from the conservation finance label helping to sell these deals? Uh, versus perhaps uh, investors, especially institutional investors, seeing them as uh, as perhaps a label that that they want to run away from. <laughs> I don't like. I don't even think institutional investors, for the most part, are reading the label at this point. What we are really talking about here is: can we come up with products that? banks can create, right? I mean, there is a reason why this conference, was, the, the conference David attended was like credit suite. It has been for the, of the last five years, right? We're talking about making a market for these kinds of securities. And the market isn't large enough yet that you're going to see institutional asset owners going out and being like, hey, I'm going to invest in a green forestry fund, right? Like, so you're, what you're really talking about is 
can we come up with products that the sell side can sell and the buy side in some kind of capacity can buy? And by buy side, you really mean like asset owners, banks, things like that. It's not like, you know, a large pension fund or anything like that. So I think that, you know, this is one of those examples where sort of NGO, um, not-for-profit community throws around the term institutional investor without really breaking down what it is they mean. And, you know, I think in a sense, it's a little bit of a missed opportunity because there are an increasing number of buyers for these types of products that aren't necessarily like, you know, your dream pension fund. That, by the way, in some ways, it's still getting its heads around by, you know, hedge funds. And, you know, and there are also ways in which large institutional investors, both money managers and asset owners, can play a role in the whole conservation finance space. One of those is very much pushing the corporations to be more sustainable. And it's not even necessarily forcing them to do it. In some ways, it's collaborating, right? So the best example is generation many years ago. Generation Investment Management, which is Al, Al Gore and David Blood's uh, investment firm, correct? Exactly. So at least five years ago, they were very concerned about uh, palm oil and the deforestation. And so they went to Unilever, and Unilever was like, my God, thank God, thank God you're here. We've been worried about this too. Um, and Unilever is obviously very well known as being sort of one of the most sustainable companies. And they were like, you know, we want to help us form, you know, a group within the industry to try and combat this. So there's been, you know, a great example of collaboration between institutional investors, money managers, corporations, and NGOs to try and solve a clear conservation finance issue. You know, from this question of what do we do about palm oil, you can then create palm oil social finance bonds that then other types of investors can go and invest. So I think that, you know, we really need to think about how can the community of interested conservation finance stakeholders best leverage the power and voice of the institutional investors? I think that's exactly right, Imogen. And, and here's a, here's just a couple examples that from the last couple of days that I that I picked up. So, um, and 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 you know everybody's thinking you know oh green bonds you know went from sort of nothing to you know a hundred billion dollars over the course of you know five or six or eight years. And you know how do we sort of follow that trajectory? Green bonds actually themselves could be a mechanism. Most of them now, as you know, are sort of energy efficiency and kind of clean infrastructure and whatnot, not so much for natural landscapes and ecosystems. But if you can wrap those kind of cash flows, as we were saying, with a green bond of some sort, you can you can actually um, sell those. One example was the International Finance Corp a couple of years ago floated a, a product, let's say, that um, financed these kinds of ecosystem restoration things. I think there was sustainable cacao in there and, and a bunch of other projects. And they were generating carbon credits, but the, as you know, the, car, the market for carbon credits is pretty um, uh, fragmented. And what they got was a major 
international mining company, uh, BHP Billiton, to guarantee that, that they would buy carbon credits from this set of projects um, because they had their own you know, need to mitigate their carbon. And so that became a guarantee in effect for to, to pay that this bond would get paid off. They knew there was a market for the carbon credits and so therefore the investors in the bond knew that they would would get paid back. Um, and so that took, leveraged all the things we were talking about. It leveraged the corporate re- need for you know sort of compliance and carbon reduction and, and whatnot. Um, a set of investable projects in in real ecosystems around the world, um, and then a set of institutional buyers who, if it's all wrapped up in a, with a nice bow on top, are are, are perfectly happy to, to to buy this you know rated uh, financial instrument. So again, you know, it's putting those kinds of things together. That's the trick. And that's kind of my point, right? There are a lot of parts of the puzzle already out there, and there are a lot of legal requirements that exist that can be utilized. Again, like, you know, if an institutional investor is investing in mining projects, for example, those projects are going to have mitigation as part of the as part of their licensing business. They are going to have to address the environmental damage that they were doing. Now, for example, there's a money manager out there that was financing a loan to a mine in Eastern Europe. And that mine was going to impact the territory of a bunch of bears. And in order to get the license to build the mine, they had to offset the fact that they were impacting the territory by buying up a bunch of land that could be preserved for the bear um, Would you say, though, that that was the bare necessities that were needed for that deal to happen? That's what's interesting, right? They didn't just do the bare necessities. They actually went, and because of pressure from the investor, they went above and beyond the bare necessity to ensure happy bears. And that was part of their process to, it was part of the process of the, the vendor to be willing to lend to this mine, and it was part of the process of this mine being greenlit by the authority. So I think you know, a fruitful way to think about this is, okay, how do we, we have these parts in place, can we build on that? Can we make it bigger? Can we do more? And highlighting, you know, these instances where we are directly talking about conservation and understanding that there is an interrelationship between, you know, a institutional investor dollar in a mining fund and the impact on the bear community in Eastern Europe. Here's my favorite example from the last few days. There's something called the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil that many of the large food producers and others have um, have signed on to. It's a sort of a zero deforestation pledge for, for palm oil production. And um, they have a certification mechanism. And if you want to sell your 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 product, you have to be certified as uh, under this RSPO uh, guidelines, and if you don't, you have to commit to um, uh, mitigating whatever the, the 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 problems have been and, and getting in compliance so that you can sell your product. So there's starting to be a, a mechanism to to hold people to these pledges, and what happens is you can actually put a dollar number on the the mitigation commitment that these companies need to to make, and then that becomes an actual liability. Now it doesn't appear on their actual corporate balance sheet yet for a variety of sort of complex accounting reasons. But apparently when the bankers who have banked these companies re- find out that there's an, uh, you know, an un, 
unreported, you know, $30 million liability that they weren't told about when they, when they did the deal, um, they get kind of concerned. Um, and so the companies, you know, are, are trying to, to figure out how to get in compliance. And what this entity has done is, is take all those compliance uh, penalty dollars, or, or at least um, sort of uh, virtual dollars, and 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 created a, a financing mechanisms that drives it back into the restoration projects themselves. That's just palm oil. There may be something like four or five or six hundred million dollars of this already outstanding, already assessed, already already you know sort of accounted for at some level. And that's just palm oil. There's rubber. There's there's cacao. There's there's all sorts of other other commodities. And um, Again, you know, take a complicated system, turn it into a, a cash flow or a, or, a, or a set of values and then finance that and then package that up and then sell it to, to folks who, who want to see, you know, just, just who, who want the outcomes and want the impact, but also just want something that's plugged straight into their portfolios. That palm oil roundtable that you're talking about, that is the thing that Generation and Unilever helped develop. There you so, go. So, in a sense, it all comes full circle and it's having the right actors at the table at the right time and potentially thinking creatively about how how to use those players. Like, again, maybe it's not my investment dollars. Maybe it's my power of convening. Maybe it's my shareholder engagement. Maybe there are, there are other ways to pull on these levers. So th- there are a range of ways that folks can get involved in conservation finance. But in wrapping this conversation up, Imogen, uh, what would you see as the biggest opportunity here? Is is conservation finance, is, is the future of it going to be driven by the tree huggers or by the fat cats? <laughs> I, know. I, I, I think it's always a bit of enlightened self-interest, right? I think it's, it's going to be driven by all of the stakeholders coming together and identifying the key opportunities, which, you know, I really think is starting to happen. <laughs> but I, I think David should do the chance again, because I don't think he put his heart into it. <laughs> I was just going to go there. How, how did you know, Imogen? Nature reduces risk. Nature reduces risk. I think if you ask Brian, what's it going to be driven by? It's going to be... Dr- <laughs> oh, let's do it all together. Yeah, really let's do it all together. <laughs> One, two, three. Nature, Nature reduces reduce. risk. You're not putting your heart into it. I'm, I'm just letting you two uh, sit that one out. Um, so w- when, think... when this chant was happening, David, at the in, in the conference center at the Credit Suisse, did a drum circle then break out, or did people uh, pull out? No, their you're hacky misunderstanding. Sacks? You're misunderstanding it, Brian. The, the, you ask who what's going to drive this? It literally is risk, and you know the tree huggers. Uh, you know, notwithstanding, when um, insurance rates are going up, when municipal bond ratings are going down, when all kinds of costs and, and, and liabilities um, start appearing on balance sheets in various ways, that is what drives it. And that's what drives, I think Imogen would agree, that's, that's, that's a, a much more powerful uh, motivator for these institutional investors um, than you know, any sort of you know, blue sky promise of, of upside returns on these things. So it's really like, where is where, what, where are there weaknesses in the system that um, we need to somehow hedge against and mitigate against and, and try to prevent from wrecking our portfolios? And those, those are the kinds of things that, that are going to drive the dollars. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. If you want to learn more about conservation finance, be sure to check out Impact Alpha's website and the daily newsletter, The Brief, which provides daily news and actionable intelligence for the growing number of people working to build an inclusive, sustainable, and yes, prosperous future. Thanks so much, David. Thank you, Brian, as always. And thank you, Imogen. 
Thanks, Brian. <laughs> and, and thank you to Imogen's colleague, who is driving her right now safely. Uh, and special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thank you, Isaac. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. On behalf of David Bank and Imogen Rose-Smith, thanks for listening to Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking with you again soon.